This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Yeah, Are we just going to talk about Pokemon in the end? <laughs> that should be our new segment. <laughs> Pokemon and late capitalism. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual are my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. We also have a special guest with us. Yeah, there's someone who is with us as not usual. So I'm excited. We have Andy Stern here today. Andy is um, someone I've known for a long time. Uh, he was president of SCIU. He's currently a senior fellow at Columbia. And the reason we brought him in here is he is also the author of the new book, Raising the Floor, which is a thoroughgoing case for why a universal basic income will solve all of our problems as a country, a world, uh, a species. Um, and this is a topic that's come up on on the podcast a lot. It's something that I'm really interested in. And so I'm excited he is here to talk about it with us. So Andy, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you all. I thought a good way to begin would be since we we run a site that uh, does a lot of explainers, give us, you know, in, in one or two minutes, give us an explainer of UBI for someone who's never heard of the idea before. So UBI is a very simple historic policy that it says that Every citizen in the United States uh, should re receive basically Social Security. So it's Social Security for all. And it's based on two concepts. One, which is historic, which is it's a better way to end poverty by giving everybody money. That was something Martin Luther King and Milton Friedman both agreed on. And then secondly, as a time of technological disruption begins to appear, is it a way to provide stability in the economy as work is disrupted and people are having a harder time making ends meet. So let me challenge both sides of that. Let me, let me start with a vicious attack on, on, right. on your explainer. <laughs> so on side one, something that I have noticed repeatedly about the, uh, about the universal basic income debate is there can be an invocation, and I've done this too, of bipartisan interest. And there is bipartisan interest, but the kinds of UBIs that conservatives and liberals are into are not just different but mutually exclusive. You have conservatives who believe in using a universal basic income to replace the rest of the welfare state. And you have liberals who believe it should be there, but so too should Medicare, so too should Obamacare. And then the second side of that that I, I'd, like to, I'd like to push on a little bit is for all this talk of technological change, for all the talk that robots are going to take all our jobs, productivity growth is low. We don't really see that much technological displacement in the economy. I mean, we can all conceptually point to reasons it should be happening, but it's really not there in the data. The unemployment rate is not that high, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like these are the two big arguments you hear for UBI. One, that there is this broad cross-ideological range of interest, but I'm not sure that holds up on scrutiny. And two, that we're going to need it. And this is why Silicon Valley has become so into it, because the robots are going to take all our jobs. But as Matt has written, in some ways, we'd be better off if the robots were taking more of our jobs. A real problem we have is that technological productivity does not appear to be increasing at the speed that we would need it to for, for living standards to be rising. So, so on the first part about whether or not this has broad political support, I think in the real world, it, it does in the sense that conceptually people agree that there is a more efficient way to end poverty than the current poverty system before we get to the technological part. And I think it's like healthcare reform, where the first bridge you had to cross is everyone had to say, we need to change the system, we need to do something different. And we saw pharma and unions and 
nurses and doctors and the medical device industry all come together around that one issue. And then the question was, the fight was about, well, what does that mean? And I can tell you in my book, I write about you know Michael Tanner, who's in charge of Cato's social policy, who says that the real question will be that liberals, as you said, are going to want to build on top and conservatives are going to want to end it all. And there's going to be something in the middle. There has to be more revenue, but there's not going to be as much revenue as progressives want. And now we're just negotiating. You know, what to me is is always most interesting about possible convergence around UBI is is questions around uh, regulation more than actually spending. That, you know, we have a, a ton of movement lately around um, minimum wage activism, right? Um, and then you have, you know, counter arguments. Pe- people will look at the data and they'll say, well, you know, do, do these things cost jobs or, or not? Um, but, but I've always thought the sort of like really basic like libertarian freedom-based argument against the minimum wage has a kind of persuasiveness to it, right? That like if John goes and says to Jack, like, I'd like to give you $6 to go do an hour's worth of work. And Jack's like, yeah, I'd rather have $6. Like, why should the government stop you from doing that? And then, of course, like the reason we want the government to stop you from doing that is that, you know, people need a minimum living of subsistence, that we have a the, the labor market in reality is this like somewhat coercive environment because you're like out on the streets and you starve to death, right? And in a in a basic income world, though, you would say that that's, that's not the case. People are not relying on the labor market for their basic subsistence and that therefore you really could and should have like freedom in employment relations, right? That people would be freed from the need to be sort of in the labor market and therefore that you could free up what the labor market is actually like. You know, it, it's not a great like practical political bargain in the same dollars and cents way. But on the on the conceptual level, it's like you could make the libertarian vision have some reality to it instead of just this like uh, the rich man and the pauper have an equal right to sleep under the bridge. Yeah, I've also been also, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but thinking about the labor market interaction, because I think this is something that um, Jason Furman at the Council of Economic Advisors gave a talk on a few weeks ago where he was making the case against UBI. And one of the things he was talking about there was kind of lower work incentives, that if you have UBI, people are going to be you know less likely to want to work if they have, let's say, this $12,000 check. They might decide that that's enough to subsist on. I've seen some of your arguments against that. I was curious kind of how you think about how much labor displacement would you expect and like how much does that, does it worry you or, or, or not? I say this is all about timing. So right now it's very fair to say about the Uber driver, let's figure out how to wrap around the benefits that currently come from an employment to a self-managed work life. Totally reasonable. Should there be a minimum wage, social security, disability? Then, when there's no Uber drivers, you have a whole different set of questions that you have to ask. And I think we have the pre- because dr- of driverless cars. Driverless yeah. cars. I'm sorry. And so you have two different time frames. You have a, a set of what I call mitigating policies that I think are totally appropriate for now. You can expand the EITC. You can deal with infrastructure. There's lots of ideas. But then there's the question of if you get to the point, and this goes to Ezra's first question. Is McKinsey, who says that 45% of all the tasks can be eliminated 13% more with artificial intelligence, is Oxford at 47% of all jobs, Boston consultant Larry, Gro- Larry, Larry Summers, Bill Gross. I mean, the list goes on and on of pretty reputable people who live in the market in the real world every day as opposed to the economists who kind of look backwards at how the world has been. And of course, the futurists are all saying there is a huge potential for disruption. And all I say is if someone said a tsunami was coming to the shore, we shouldn't debate is 
is it going to hit, you know, in northern New Jersey or southern New Jersey, we should prepare ourselves and, and have insurance and develop a policy that we could roll out and, and experiment with in case it's needed. So there's an interesting argument about the non-monetary rewards of work here, I think. If we had uh, Arthur Brooks sitting here. Uh, who's the head of the American Enterprise Institute, he would be uh, pounding the table in his genteel Arthur Brooks way that work isn't just about being able to make a living. It's about learning the skills of life. It is about having dignity that the numbers show people are much happier when they uh, are working than when they're not working. And he would also say that we need policy that pushes people into work. We need policy that, that makes it worthwhile for people to work. And if you tell folks, and I recognize the evidence here is a little bit, is a little bit tricky, but if you tell folks, listen, you can have um, a subsistence level wave, uh, wage, I'm sorry, and you can have your new VR or augmented reality goggles because those will be 400 bucks. And you can just drop out and we can enter the world of Ready Player One for those of you who have read that book or the soon-to-be Steven Spielberg movie. Uh, and just have a, a, a world in which we have set up policy so that we don't need to solve the problems of people being out of work. So we've set up policy that we create a very large group of people who will potentially be seen as an underclass who are not working, that that is going to be a spiritual blow to America of tremendous proportions. Now, you're a, a, a former labor leader. You, I think, have thought as much about the dignity and necessities of work as probably anyone alive. So I'm curious how you think about that argument. Do you not believe that that is the effect UBI would have? Do you not believe that is the role work should have? Where do you come down on that? So, so first of all, I, I think we need to distinguish between Arthur Brooks and all the people I saw at Aspen recently and the 70 percent of people in the Gallup poll who say they really don't think work is rewarding. You know, it's a way to make money. So there is a huge divide here between people's perception of work. And there's another huge divide between older people like myself, who work was everything in my life, and millennials and others who are having a much more difficult time. So I think, you know, we need to separate those two questions. And I do think there's an enormous challenge to try to test out, which is what Justin Trudeau is talking about doing in Canada or Finland or Utrecht about what does happen. And so I'm all for experimentation. And if it turns out people are happier playing video games, we can make a decision. Is there something wrong with that? Any more than rich people are happy running their family office and making philanthropic contributions? Or is there something valueless about the future? And we're going to really have to think differently about how to design answers to the problem. I also, Ezra, to your point about kind of like creating this underclass, I mean, we're kind of doing that in a way right now when you think a lot of people, like I think of people in like low-wage healthcare jobs, for example, who I know you've, um, um, Andy, I'm gesturing at, which you can't see on the podcast, <laughs> have kind of thought about and written about. But these folks who, you know, the administration has actually taken some steps to try and get them a little more job protection. But this massive class of predominantly African-American, predominantly female um, caregivers who are kind of responsible for this rise of aging baby boomers, there seems to me there's often very little dignity involved in that work where you're working long hours, low paid hours. You're not getting a lot of the wage protections that other industries are. So it, it speaks to a, a difference in how, you know, I might see work and a lot of other people, you know, a much there's a much smaller number of journalists in the country than home health workers and the home health workers ranks are growing and there doesn't always seem to be a lot of dignity to the work or respect to the work that they're doing. So so let me let me take the other side of this argument. I, I made the argument that you both are making to Arthur. So if you go back in the Weeds archives, you can listen to our interview together. And his 
answer is interesting. So this is not an argument I fully buy, but I do want to push on this because I also think it's easy for a bunch of people who like their jobs and, and feel really good about their jobs to say that other people don't. Um, I take your point on the poll. But according to Brooks, there is really good time use survey data, and it shows that people who are working, and this is not cut by the income by which they make, the education which they have, people who are working are just much happier than people who are not, that there is very powerful data on this front. And that Does to, that go to wealthy people huh? also? Does that go to wealthy people also? Yeah, that he his, is not a class issue. This what is that is wealthy saying, people not working are unhappy. What he is saying is that the unusual thing about this data, the thing right. that he that you would not expect, is that it does not cut by income. Okay. And we know that when people experience unemployment, they experience it as a tremendous trauma that they do not recover from for for many years. I mean, look, like within the union, let's let's speak within some of the jobs in the union movement. Manufacturing jobs are often not fun jobs, but when people lose their job at the mill. We don't think great, like they don't have the shitty manufacturing job. It's a fucking disaster. But isn't and it's part of that economic? Oh, I just yeah. want to finish this argument. <laughs> the other thing that I think is important here is that within the context of American politics, we tend to separate out people who work and people who don't work very sharply. And uh, subsidies or programs that are targeted at people who don't work tend to get cut. They tend to be continuously um, endangered. And even within the Democratic Party, I think we've talked about this before, like Bernie Sanders would have these big banners on his uh, webpage. Nobody who works a 40-hour week should live on starvation wages. And so I think that there, there's a, a deep cultural issue here. So both in terms of how people experience not having work uh, and, again, like the data on people who are unemployed and other things show that they're sleeping a lot. They're watching a lot of television. Um, and secondarily, the way that American politics treats people who don't work as people who have made a, a choice that is really problematic, as people who maybe are not worthy of support like welfare checks, um, those feel like big things we're going to have to overcome here. But th th this, I always get a little confused as to like how Arthur Brooks's official argument about the dignity of work is meant to line up with the like actual issue that is being debated here, right? I mean, if we accept the premise that a giant wave of technological disruption is going to render market labor for the majority of people completely unnecessary, whether or not the dignity of work is irreplaceable, we're still left with the question of like, what do we do? Then conversely, if we if we don't accept that argument, right, if like there's going to be continued economic necessity for large scale labor market participation, then we might worry that a UBI would destroy the economy by pulling people out of the workforce, in which case the good news might be that no, actually people have this like very strong question of morale that like wants to keep them in the labor force, there is like one box, right, where like if we think that the psychological value of work is irreplaceable and also that technology is going to completely destroy the labor market demand for work, that's an interesting policy question uh, about like what do we need to do We there? all become Pokemon but, trainers. But, 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 <laughs> no, no, I mean, and, and, and it is true, right? I mean, so you could say it's like, well, can we do something with the world of video games to cause them to have those like moral issues of work? But it, either way, the, the basic income is not like causing the problem if you're in that universe. It's the destruction well, let me push. Of, the, so, of the labor well, Let me just yeah, push please. back on one thing, yeah. which is yeah, I think we need to appreciate – we can create scenarios that we can deploy depending on the circumstances that we face. So you don't have to agree that with McKinsey, you can agree with 
you know, other people who say there's no going to be no Jason Furman, no technological disruption. If he's right, great. Let's fix the EITC. Let's do the minimum way. If he's wrong, though, you know, the people are going to suffer, not Jason Furman and Arthur Brooks. They're going to be all the people I represented. So I don't understand why we can't do what the business and the military does, which is test out some scenarios, have them on the shelf and deploy them as they may be necessary. And I think UBI is totally worth, as we're going to see around the world, testing and seeing what are the reactions, what do people do, and is it a adequate response? And if not, someone tell me what is the adequate response if there is massive technological so is disruption. That the, is that the way you think of rollout for the policy, that it shouldn't be – that, that you're, what you're advocating is not ideally in 2017 or 2018 or whatever it is, we pass a, a UBI in advance of this, but that a UBI is something we explore and only take off the shelf in the case of 11% technologically driven unemployment? I, I think that's one way to look at it. I think there is a second issue, which it hasn't talked about as much, which is I think the idea of having a universal basic income from kids zero to six, zero to eight. Mm-hmm would be worthwhile. We make all this important data that shows us zero to three is the most important times, and yet we have really no support for parents or kids. So it'd be interesting to try for the next generation of children, giving those parents sort of a health savings account for children, you know, so they can get some of the benefits that middle and upper middle class, which a lot of other countries already do. What about for, if you're talking about able-bodied adults who don't have small children at home, I think a sort of compelling other idea is some form of a of a public service jobs guarantee, right? I mean, something like what the Roosevelt administration did in the 30s to say, like, at least in the here and now, we are not lacking for sort of problems that could be tackled, potholes that could be filled, like water mains that could be repaired, uh, possibly situations abroad where people need help. Like, wouldn't it make sense in in a different way, like aligning what what everybody's concerned with here is, you know, say like, look, we're going to give people something to do. We're going to get over this sort of uh, paranoid fear of public sector work. And we're going to actually say, look, we have a lot of people. We have a lot of big challenges. The role of government should be to connect the people with those challenges. Give us all like something worthwhile to be doing with our time and, and solving big problems. So I say one thing that's really extraordinary is that no one has done any work on this. We keep pointing back to the WPA. We don't have examples anywhere else in the world. No one's costed out, figured out how you would administer anything like that. And my greatest fear is you're going to have all the white guys go do infrastructure and all the women and people of color be in caregiving. And we're not just talking anymore about blue-collar workers. We're talking about white-collar workers as well. So I always say if if your child's college – degreed person is ready to change my feeding tube and clean my house, then I think we should talk about guaranteed jobs. But this is about women and people of color getting no choices but to do personal care and men getting higher paid construction jobs. I got a problem. So I would challenge people in the policy world, tell me where the guaranteed jobs program is. I think it's a totally reasonable solution, but no one's done any work or figured out the cost. They just attack UBI as insufficient with no alternative. What are the experiments you're most excited about right now? Because I know this is something that's kind of happen, happening somewhere in the U.S., places in Canada, elsewhere. What are the ones you're watching and are there results that could change your views about whether they should be scaled or not? Yeah. So the ones that I'm watching most are the ones that are closest to being deployed, which is Finland, which has, I think, an experiment for 8,000 people in Utrecht, which has mostly welfare 
redoing the welfare system. And, you know, we have a small test of Y Combinator. D- give directly, I'm very interested, but it's in, in Africa and Namibia, so I'm not sure people will accept it as a— Utrecht's in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, exactly. <laughs> Dutch. I think the one that's going to have the most significance to our country, though, is what Justin Trudeau does, which now looks like there will be one in Ontario, maybe one in Quebec. So I think – and what would bother me would be, you know, if all of a sudden we saw people in bars and all the the worst stereotypes we used to have about welfare recipients come true, which I don't think will be because Alaska has certainly shown that where people get a $3,500 dividend once a year in one check, the bars aren't flooded that next two weeks and the money all spent. Expl- explain the Alaska situation because I, I think a lot of people don't don't know about this. Well, Alaska, probably because of its libertarian tendencies when the North Shore oil revenues came in, rather than giving the money to the government and letting the government give it out however they saw fit, schools, infrastructure, said, you know what, we're going to just give the money back to the people. So once a year, every Alaskan citizen gets a dividend off of the oil uh, resources, which equals twenty-five to thirty-five hundred dollars a year, depending on the amount of money, and you get it at eighteen years old. And it's an, another interesting experiment where I'd say not enough research has been done to figure out well what happens in Alaska. Do more kids go to school? Do people pay off their loans at that time? Are these good or bad you know habits that people use when the check comes in? But it is an interesting idea that is why libertarians like universal basic income is sort of having the government do as Michael. Tanner says the one thing the government does better than anyone else is write checks. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. So what is the details on Trudeau's experiment? Because I've not heard much about that. Yeah, I don't think – I think it's still being adopted. You know, his father actually did the experiment in Manitoba when he was there. It it was in his platform of the Liberal Party. His minister of human services actually wrote a book in the 1980s on basic income. So there's a lot of history Mm -hmm. there. I think they're working with a number of people to figure that out and I really haven't heard the amount or the – breadth of it. But it's going to be much more than Y Combinator's 100 people. It's going to be tens of thousands from what I understand. And how do you think about, because I know one of the big debates around this will often be budget. How much of this cost? You have critics saying it's just too expensive. And I've seen some of your arguments against that. How do you think about if we're going to test this properly, how much amount matters? If we're like experimenting with $5,000 versus $10,000, like would the results of a $5,000 experiment still be 
valid? And how do you think about um, kind of the budget challenges that critics will often bring up here? Yeah. So I, I feel like if we're going to do this as an anti-poverty program, which is what Martin Luther King and Charles Murray and Milton Friedman said, then we should give enough money so you're out of poverty, which according to the federal government's $11,994 for an individual, $12,000 a year. So, you know, I pick that number. We can all fight about is that enough or too much. But I would start as a, both anti-poverty as well as to deal with technological uh, disruption. And, you know, I think the costs can be calculated. I, I think there's been a lot of fuzzy math that's been used up to now. I think Roosevelt Institute and others are trying to begin to do the kind of in-depth research about what is the effect of the tax system and how much gets clawed back and how many people already get Social Security or disability that's above that level. But, you know, it will cost additional revenues. And in my case, I disagree with the libertarians about cashing out Social Security and health care. So one of the things that I think that gets you into, there's an interesting critique of this from the left. Bob Greenstein, who's the head of the Center on Budget and Policy Parties, put out a really uh, a fascinating, pretty thorough paper on this. And there's a lot going on in, in his argument. But one of the big things that he believes about a UBI is that even if you could do it, the problem is that you're generating tremendous amounts of revenues for, I think, what he would consider a fairly poorly targeted program that compared to other ways of uh, creating social services or even other cash transfer programs like the EITC, you are spending a lot of money on not just me or Donald Trump's kids or, or people who are higher up the income brackets, but, you know, people who are in the middle class but maybe don't need that much help. People in the and, – and meanwhile, the folks who are very low down the scale are, are getting the same as everyone else. And his, you know, view of this is that, that it's even different there from Social Security, which does have more of a, per, uh, a progressive slant to it. So – how do you think about the distributional consequences off of it? I think a, a real UBI would not leave a lot of room in the tax code and, and just how much we could efficiently raise to do a ton of other things. But it's not a very highly targeted program. So, so one is I would say if policy was like college ball, Bob Greenstein would be the world champion. The problem is policy is not politics. And I think what we've learned that you know, a British historian or sociologist once said that any policy only for the poor is poor policy, you know, that Alaska endures and doesn't get drug tested or have all the other consequences of poverty programs because we don't separate out the worthy and the unworthy poor. So I think you have to spend money to buy out a group of people in the middle class, I'm not saying the upper middle class, you can make adjustments to the tax code in order to make this work. If you're worried about that, you can do more of the Milton Friedman guaranteed income and sort of phase it out higher up on the tax line. But I don't – I think it's wonderful to talk about, you know, what would be a better – way to handle poverty. The problem is poverty keeps going up in this country. Nearly 50% of the kids are doing it. We've made the same arguments over and over. We've gotten nowhere. So I'm ready to spend more money than we need to in order to get a program that's enduring and doesn't treat people without dignity. So, so to push a little bit there, part of Greenstein's argument is that it's actually not true that programs for the poor are poor programs. He says that when people make that argument, what they are conflating is two kinds of things. They're conflating universal versus targeted and actually working versus non-working. And he he thinks that the history of programs for the non-working in this country is really fraught, that programs like welfare, they get torn apart very quickly. The people who are on them get stigmatized very badly. But there are a lot of programs, um, EITC is a good example of one, that are programs for the poor that actually do quite well, that continuously are expanded. Food stamps are another Medicaid that have actually gone up. Medicaid has, all, has, gone, has become only larger and larger in recent years. 
I hear this argument that programs for the poor are pro- poor programs a lot, and I also hear the argument that programs that are targeted at the poor are continuously getting cut. But with the exception of welfare, which I think had some unusual characteristics, particularly around race, um, or I think what Bob would say is that there are unusual characteristics around workingness, which UBI would share, that programs for the poor often do fine in American politics. Well, I, I don't think that's exactly true about food stamps. And certainly in the states, unemployment insurance, you know, is now down to a very small minimum in lots of different... Right. And he uses that as an example, the working versus non-working. Yeah, so I, I would just say, first of all, we need to, in the working versus non-working, decide if there is going to be more working. Mm-hmm. Because part of my premise is not simply as a welfare efficiency argument, but what are we going to do if the situation gets much worse? And we've already seen how our system doesn't work well for Uber drivers and independent contractors and people in alternative work arrangements that our social benefit system needs to be reconstructed anyway. The question is, what are we going to do? And, you know, I was a welfare worker. You know, the idea that a 23-year-old middle-class suburban kid was telling African-American women with kids about how to lead their life, you know, I can only imagine what they felt on the other side of that argument, I think the welfare system is really paternalistic. It's really humiliating. It really treats people as unworthy because they're in a series of situations, a lot being caregivers for children. And I just think we can do better as a country. And I I, I understand what Bob says. And I again, he would be the world champion college ball player. But this is not college ball. This is real life. You know, in, in distributive terms, it, it always strikes me that it's it's challenging to talk about these things in isolation because it really matters how you pay for it, right? And the the income tax code has a lot of UBI-like aspects to it. Mm-hmm. If you become wealthy enough to you'd like max out the value of the various deductions and exemptions where, you know, you don't have to be like super duper rich for the mortgage interest deduction and personal exemption and the dependent whatever stuff to, you know, add up to like a decent chunk of change. And the reason all of that is in the tax code, right, is not just like for no reason. It's the basic idea that like these are the common expenses of just getting by in life are like you need a house, the kid needs clothes, you know, that kind of thing. But you don't fully benefit from those kind of provisions if you're in the working poor or even sort of close to it right now. So if you imagine like redoing the system from scratch, right, you would have many, many fewer sort of this is a basic necessity, so we're going to make it a tax deduction because the idea would be, no, you get your basic necessities check. Um, And then, you know, there's I think like a big like unknowable question. It's like, well, if you had a big political bargain around a universal basic income, like what would actually come out of it? Probably something terrible, but you know that's like that's, that's like, today's cynicism. Well, you know that's that's Congress for you. Um, but you know when it when it comes to any sort of distributional question, right? Like it it really depends. Like how is it paid for? Like what were the bargains made to to go make it? And like what what is the point? What 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 Greenstein is talking about is like if this like sack of a trillion dollars just showed up on your front door, like how should you spend it? And it's true, just handing it out to everyone. Equal would be a kind of weird way. Yeah, I think what the biggest mistake of Bob's argument, and we should all make a different argument, is there's $1.3 trillion of tax expenditures. Your point, spending out of the tax code, mortgage interest deduction, sheltering money for, let's put all of that, not just the welfare side for people, but the welfare side for upper income and business and other people on the table. Now we have $2.3 trillion. Now we have a, a better discussion going on about how do we pay for it. 
Good luck, though. So one of the things I think is is fascinating is we're talking about this very much as a policy question, and I think there's a very big cultural dimension to it. And the degree to which, let's assume for a minute we're talking about a world in which there is technological displacement, right? It's not 50%, but, you know, let's say 10 years from now, we are seeing persistent increases in the unemployment rate. Uh, they're not wild, but, you know, we're looking at eight becomes normal, then nine becomes normal, that kind of thing. Right. I think something that will really decide whether or not uh, a UBI is a good idea or a bad idea is how we end up looking at people who take it. We talked a moment ago about you, you had a really nice frame, I thought, at the front where you said it's Social Security for all. When people retire and take Social Security, we do not look down on them. We think that's great. You're enjoying your golden years. Uh, at the same time, when people did not have jobs and took welfare, we looked down on them. Right. And that's partially why welfare was a very vulnerable program and Social Security is not a very vulnerable program. We have a very deep culture in this country of deriving, of, of ranking people and urging them to derive their status and their self-worth out of work. And it's how we look at them. It's how they look at themselves. So how do you think about changing that or what would have to happen for it to change? Because one thing I could completely imagine is we do have the technological displacement and we blame people for it. Right. We blame them for not getting the retraining. Right, for not becoming when you say home. taking it, you're talking about Everyone is getting, but these are people who are not working, right, they're not getting work, UBI. Right, yeah. So there will be the people who right. get a UBI and have a job. Right. And then there will be okay. some group of people getting a UBI and not working. playing VR or they're, you know, could be they're doing community service. A million things could be happening. They're an artist, right? Um, but they are not – they don't get paid. They don't okay. do paid labor. See, I think what's going to be the interesting switch in this moment, I, I write about in my book, The Difference Between the Iraq War and the Vietnam War. I was number nine on the draft list. In the Vietnam War, my middle-class parents were anti-war, having only one consideration before they got to whether the war was good or bad. Their son wasn't going overseas. The Iraq War comes along. It's all volunteer army. It's those kids who are doing it. The Vietnam War is the technological change. This is a white-collar problem now even more. The blue-collar people got a lot of the changes through globalization and the end of auto steel and other kinds of jobs. Now we're talking about accountants and we're talking about lawyers and we're talking about people that are graduating the Columbia Business School because all of a sudden technology is not just a, a displacement of one group of people. I think when problems are middle class problems and white middle class problems, they're America's problems in a much different way. And I think that's going to be personally the switch is when you go to college, you get your master's degree and all you can be is an adjunct professor for $4,000 a year or course. Andy Stern. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This week, we're going we're gonna to mix things up a little bit, and we're going to talk about a research paper that is making news, dominating the headlines. Dominating the NBER headlines. in the spotlight. Yeah. So, so okay. So, Roland Fryer, um, an economist at Harvard and one of the real sort of young uh, uh, hotshots in uh, the, the, the economics game. You won the Clark Medal, right? Yes, and and relevant to, to this research, more or less, is that he's, I, I believe, the only African-American economist to, to ever win yes. the, the Clark Medal. So he's, he's really um, the sort of the most uh, distinguished young black economist. And he did a research 
paper into police uh, police use of force, uh, which has not been a longtime scholarly interest of his, but has obviously been a, a preoccupation of, of much of society. Um, and he came to the conclusion that in at least the, the sample that he studied, with using sort of relatively sophisticated statistical controls, that police officers were no more likely to shoot at an African-American suspect than a white one. And this was uh, written up. It seems like he he partnered with The New York Times um, to do a sort of exclusive story on it, which um, definitely played up the sort of null result finding there. He um, did find, just worth noting, that they were more likely to use force in other ways, just not lethal force. Right? Yeah, essentially every kind of non-lethal force. Like they were more likely to shove a black guy up against the wall, more likely to handcuff. Or pointing a gun. So yeah. there was like more frequency of guns being present. Just the shooting, the shooting was the only one. And it's kind of become the focus of the coverage of the research where you didn't see the difference. And I, I certainly feel like this is one of these interesting things where like research, particularly the, the world of of NBER working papers, which although we laugh about it like it's like an obscure thing, but in the academic world, this is considered like a really like wired to the media like group of academics. And if the headline and the lead of the article had been that this new research showed that police officers were 18% more likely to use non-lethal force against black suspects, I feel like everyone's like response to it would have been different. And then you would have had conservatives complaining that they'd like buried the lead, that there was no more likely to be shootings. But instead what was played up was like no more likely to shoot. So then it's kind of like down there like, oh, well, they're more likely to like shove you, kick you, point a gun at you, (laughs) handcuff you, et cetera, which sounds kind of unpleasant to me. And more likely to stop you, right? So that's been one of the big critiques. So this is, I think, super important. Yeah. So one of the big critiques has just been around the data that he's using. So he gathered up, from what I understand, data, mostly from the Houston Police Department, because it seems like they had good data. And I think this is one of kind of the real world challenges you run into as an economist is just finding the information you want. So he finds Houston has this great set of data. They're willing to share it with him. So he's working with a data set that is um, information police departments have about stops they've made. What, and I will not be the first one to point this out, this, you know, leaves out is who's being stopped in the first place. So if you so you're looking at the sample set and saying that of the people who are stopped, police officers are no more likely to shoot black people than white people. What this obviously leaves out is this doesn't really answer the question, are you more likely to be shot by the police if you're black, if you have a sample size that, you know, predominantly stops black people in the first place. So I think this has been pointed out as a significant um, kind of limitation of the study. And one that Fryer, he did an interview with the Times as they've gotten a lot of pushback on this study. And he totally admitted it that, you know, yes, this is a limitation of the study. And I think one of the hard parts about having this played up is like a very large story in the New York Times is it's becoming under a lot more scrutiny. And I think he sees this as like one paper in a larger body of work that will continue to happen. But the limitations have been, you know, very much pointed out and used to kind of criticize the work and conclusions he's making. This is something that I, I thought I was clear, but maybe I'm not. Does he control for stops or it's just a quality of the data that you can't tell who is being stopped? Well, he's saying that the, the research is conditional on having been right. stopped yes. and various other things. What, one reason that he, he relies on the Houston is it has a very rich 
set of descriptions of what is going on. So the idea is to control for aspects of the situation. So it's like given that you have been stopped by the police mm-hmm. and the police say they suspect you had a weapon. Or the police say you were compliant or non-compliant. Right. right. Exactly. Th- things like that. So it's it's very much thinking like an economist because yeah. I think like the casual observation, which appears to be be quite robust, is that black people are wildly disproportionately likely to be shot by the police mm-hmm. relative to their numbers in the population. So the question is, well, let's dive down to like what's going on here. Is it that black people who are stopped by the police are more likely to point a gun at the police officers? Because that would be a one kind of explanation mm-hmm. for why this is happening. And he's finding that, no, that's that's not the case, right? That when you control for all the different elements of the interaction, that there's no racial gap. But there is, we know, a big racial gap in being stopped by the police in, in the first place. Um, and so it's worth saying, I mean, he, he says this in the original Times article, again, in the interview, that it's obviously, it's not dead people walking around who are creating the impression that the police are discriminating in their conduct against African-American men. It's all the African-American men who aren't dead who have had mm-hmm. the experience of these interactions with the police. And what he's finding is that African-Americans are more likely to be stopped by the police and when they are stopped by the police are more likely to be roughed up by the police. So you have this huge share of African-Americans, primarily African-American men, who have had the experience of being stopped and roughed up by the police and who their other black friends have also had this experience. So this is why you have in the community a apparently accurate conventional wisdom that the police are much more likely to stop you and kick you, stop you and shove you against the wall, stop you and handcuff you uh, if you're black, um, which naturally creates a suspicion that they're also more likely to shoot you. That appears not to be true. And more likely to point a gun at you. But but here I want to go into the shooting part because I think this is where the stopping stuff becomes very important. Uh, I'm, I'm going to forget the exact numbers. One of the recent victims of a police shooting, uh, he had been st- stopped 53 times before. Was that right? It was yes. 52. 52 or something I don't know. Like it's that. in the neighborhood. So let's say that you think in any given um, interaction with the police, there is only a 0.5% of lethal force being used, right? Only a 0.5% chance of them mistaking, let's say, accidental lethal force or, or unnecessary lethal lethal force, right? Only a 0.5% chance, and I'm making this up completely. It's probably like 0.00 whatever. Like I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to hang myself on the numbers here. But whatever, a very small chance of the interaction going badly wrong. Now, I have not been stopped by the police very often. So if whatever it is, like I've been stopped by the police three times driving different places. And so there just have not been many chances for something to go wrong. But if you've been stopped 52 times, often for not very much reason at all, that's 52 opportunities for something to go wrong. And I think that that is one way in which different observations here plausibly line up. It may be the case It may also not be, but let's say for the moment, it may be the case that on a given stop, police are not more likely to shoot you if you're African-American. But if it is a case that police have X percentage chance of shooting anyone and they're stopping African-Americans 20 times more, then we would expect a much higher rate of African-Americans being shot by the police. And Friar's data doesn't contradict that. It it is within that. But I do think the way it has been reported – has 
given an impression that does not speak to that caveat. And I actually do think that caveat is important. I think that probably is a lot of what's going on, that there's just more opportunities for these interactions to go wrong. Stop and frisk communities are more opportunities for these interactions to go wrong. Like this feels to me like a big part of the story. Now, of course, I could just be wrong about that too, but it's certainly a big part of the pushback I've seen, and it, it seems persuasive to me. No, and I think you're right here. We've been, you know, I run the data and graphics team at Fox, and we've been doing a little bit of work on an article you'll see at some point about victims of um, police shootings, those who have died in interaction with police. And you see that even though the American population is about 13% African American, it's about 24% of shooting of those who have died in interactions with police are African American. So you definitely see that disparity. And this has shown up, I think, in The Guardian's count and The Washington Post, other kind of news outlets that have been doing tracking of these sorts of things. And I think one of the one of the reasons this is getting so much attention and pushback is that it is completely possible for these two things to be true. Like Mm -hmm. you're saying that African-Americans are disproportionately killed in interactions with the police and that when you look at police interactions, you don't when you just look at the police interactions that you don't see at one given interaction, one given interaction. Yeah. It's just this high number of interactions. And I think, you know, one of the things that speaks to me is how us and researchers kind of interact with research. We've talked before, I think mostly Matt and I, about Swedish administrative data and this paper that came out, um, also an NPR paper, a hotbed of controversy where, you know, you saw researchers often want to point at what's novel and what's new. And you can see when you have something interesting and new, that gets you a big New York Times article mm-hmm. that gets people to pay attention to the work you're you're doing. And I think as journalists, we also often gravitate towards kind of like the counterintuitive finding or like because people are interested in something that they haven't seen before. I think if you had kind of emphasized the parts of the study that shows black people get roughed up by the police more than white people it wouldn't have been made as much of a of a splash and an impact. And there are these biases in journalism and academic publishing to really emphasize the new, the different, the thing that no one else has done, even if it you know doesn't actually speak to the kind of larger body of research mm-hmm. that exists on the topic. I would also say something that I'm a little uncomfortable raising, but while well, obviously racial discrimination is, is bad, um, also the baseline is sort of relevant. And it has certainly not been my experience uh, as, as someone who has occasionally been stopped by police officers that the way police officers conduct themselves in with regard to white suspects is like in any way acceptable. You know, that like it's obviously even worse to be like more of a jackass to African-Americans. But police officers, it seems to me, I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I'm going to paint with a broad brush because I feel like everyone has been bending over backwards to say like most cops are wonderful. They only rarely shoot people for no reason. And it's true. They only rarely shoot people for no reason. But it has not been my experience that people are treated with a presumption of innocence or any kind of basic respect, particularly if you are marked as an outsider in any kind of way, right, that state troopers in rural areas, when they stop people who have out-of-state license plates, you know, are like giving you the hard eye and stuff. When I was at a, a like a punk show on, on Randall's Island and someone knocked a gate down and the cops decided to like run in on their riot control horses and start smacking people over the head, it was like, it, it seemed 
seemed to me that it was like they're like, what well, these guys like they're not they're not part of our like police officer community, and so we're gonna rough them up. And I, I remember when I was in high school, I went to a vigil march thing for for Matthew Shepard, um, who would, had been a gay guy who'd been killed. And I, I don't really even know why this was a thing. But, you know, it was like the, the 90s were a different time with regard to LGBT rights. And so there was like this big this big march. And uh, I, I was there with with some of my friends and it wound up you can you can look this up, but like it wound up turning into like a strange, violent riot situation where the police were kicking me on the ground. They arrested hundreds of people. And like there was nothing nothing was happening at all. It was just like a time of heightened political tensions in New York City. Um, the gay community and the NYPD like ethic were not seen as like on the same side. And it really felt to me like they were looking for a pretext to go beat people up. Um, and I think that there's a really, really serious issue that needs to be looked at with all of this kind of stuff and not just the purely like what is the delta between how do they treat uh, African-Americans who they stop and, and, and white people, but like how do they treat criminal suspects in general? So this study relies heavily on Houston, but not exclusively on Houston. There are other departments uh, in there. But it does rely exclusively on departments that are doing a really good job collecting data. Right, and that, that is like wanted a, to participate, wanted in, an to participate in the academic study. So something to, to your point there, you know, you have had some really bad experiences with police. I have had um, some bad experiences and some pretty good ones. Different police are different. Different police uh, communities are different. Different communities are different. Right? There's a, there's a lot of diversity in 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 not just experiences but practices. Yes. Uh, something Dara Lind, who uh, at Vox pointed out in her piece on the study, is that all of the police departments participating in the study are also participants in this White House police reform task force recommendation thing. Right? These are all police departments that are consciously working to collect good data, to reform their practices. And it stands to reason. I mean, again, I don't have hard evidence of this, but it stands to reason that they may actually have different and better practices than other police departments. Yeah, I should say all my complaints relate to the NYPD and Maine state troopers. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for the past 13 years. The MPDC here, they, they seem nice to me. <laughs> I, I like those guys. And just to, to Ezra's yeah. point, I mean, we're talking about different institutions. They're composed of different people. They have different leadership. They have different uh, so, whatevers. Houston may be fantastic. So I, I, I went there once. So one thing I want to point out, because I want to point out both sides of this argument. On the one hand, it is often the case that people, and I have certainly done this myself, will read data heavily that is geographically specific when that data confirms your intuitions, right? There is no doubt that if you look in in the background of things I've written about, I have talked about studies and said, this study shows X, but that study showed X in a place. It showed X on this many college campuses. It showed X in this set of cities dealing with healthcare problems, whatever it might have been. Um, so people have varied demands for rigor. Uh, but I do think that here and, and probably there too, it is relevant to say it is possible that both Fryer's study is right and that it is actually not generalizable, um, that there are very different practices in some of the suburban communities where we've been seeing actually some of the really big police riots in the aftermath of these shootings, uh, that there are 
other departments, this is true in, in, in healthcare, we see that a lot of the worst healthcare problems are extremely geographically specific. Like one of the big lessons out of healthcare data is when you're thinking about healthcare spending, the nation is actually not a very helpful sample, that there's really, really, really different patterns of Medicare spending depending on which state and even city you're in. And I would not be surprised if if we had really good data, we actually found that about police. I would not be at all surprised if we found that there are some police departments with incredibly good practices and that came out really well on the data and some police departments that were way, way, way out of line. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really a way for us to know this because the sample itself isn't random. And I think, you know, this is one of, I think there's a lot of critiques of this study that are there, but some of them have said the research is misleading. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think, you know, Fryer in his right. paper is quite clear about, you know, what his data is. Yep. I think he's been pretty transparent in like the interviews he's done about like what exactly it was he's studying. And when, you know, they, they you know, in the New York Times feature some questions like why just Houston, this isn't representative. And he said, yeah, I did just, you know, I studied a set of police departments. I'd love to work with more police departments. Like I'd want to see this body of research get bigger. So, you know, I think one of the hard things about this paper is it kind of came out as like, this is the new thing. Like this is like the new, this is what we know now about race and policing. I think probably the more accurate way to think of it is like, this is one of like dozens of papers that will be needed to create a better understanding of this. And I have not talked to Roland Fryer about this, but I'm guessing he would be happy if this catalyzed study of other police departments, we could get a better sense of like, is this representative or is Houston and these cities he studied an anomaly? But I think one thing that that also pushes towards, it is actually not possible for academics to do that right now, right? And a good example of this is you did a lot of work on lead, And there are some places where you can get really good data on lead contamination and then a lot of places where you cannot get any data really at all on lead contamination. And if you just did a study on like sort of 10 of the places you see in lead contamination, you might say like, oh, like everything's great. Or you might say everything is terrible. But actually you need the data specifically on on different areas. And I don't exactly know how this works, but this feels like something that to, to your point, Matt, it should be compulsory. I mean, it should be part of getting state and local and to some degree federal funding. A lot of these police departments are getting federal funding to get like military surplus vehicles now. I mean, there's all kinds of strings on money. And I do think that that money should come with data requirements attached so that we have some idea what is happening. And right now it's very messy. Like this is something we've been yeah. running into for the story I mentioned earlier, trying to understand of the situations in which people are killed in interactions with the police, there is no federal database you can go to right now. So what we everyone relies on is this database called Fatal Encounters. Um, it's a nonprofit. It's basically rounding up some federal data, some news reports, things people send in. Like it's a very hodgepodge of data. And one of the things we've run into as journalists is basically they decided to go very broad of like literally mm-hmm. anyone who died in an interaction with the police. So this could include someone who was being chased by the police, had a heart attack and died. And so we have been doing work on our end to kind of like clean up this data, just focus on shootings. But even those, you know, there's some, um, you know, shootings that end up turn out to be suicides when you actually look at the um, news article about it. The data is so, is very messy at this point. And it's worth saying that the 
general crime data in the United States is is really poor. Yeah. Like if you want to look up a really simple question, like did the murder rate go up last year or did it go down? You cannot get a definitive answer to that question. You get a report on a two-year lag called the Uniform Crime Report, which is like most big city police departments kind of like forward their crime info to the FBI. The crime data that they put forward is like mostly garbage that you just have to throw out because there's no system for how do you code an aggravated assault or blah, blah, blah. You figure that with a homicide, like a dead body is probably a dead body, whether it's in, you know, New Orleans or, or Chicago or whatever. Um, but then there have been very credible allegations um, particularly against the Chicago Police Department of like finding ways to even lie about their their homicide data. And, you know, data itself is a policy. I mean, a lot of Friar's um, best known research and, and longer bodies of papers have to do with education. And the reason you have a lot of economics research on schools and different things related to schools is that there was a big move at the federal level to like make schools become more data-oriented, and it's quite controversial. I mean, a lot of teachers and, and certainly their organized representatives don't like the kind of implicit scrutiny that a lot of this test-based data type stuff uh, puts on them. But it's why you can do things like try to say, are Boston area charter schools doing better than Boston area traditional public schools because they are trying to measure things in something like a like a uniform way. And it's not just that we don't have that about um, police encounters. We don't have that about the crime itself because obviously a big question, right, in in any sort of policing procedure is like, well, what is the impact of this? Not just on like bad things we don't want the cops to do, but on the good things that the police departments are supposed to be doing, right? And we're not measuring really much of anything to try to see if we can look at variation city by city, right? Are they doing a better job of controlling crime by using like harsher measures or is it counterproductive? Do the two things have nothing to do with each other? It's a it's an issue that we talk about a lot in a national context, but we're not doing any kind of national data or even a, a hint of a national Although I, would, I don't want to throw police departments under the bus. I think this just generally, and we've talked about this before, about just most of our data on like yeah. anything yeah, yeah, right. is terrible. The, Lead data. What was the? It was a welfare study we talked about a while ago. Where if you're studying, which one was that? Yeah. Well, that was a survey thing. Yeah, but, but, but it's I mean, just the, like in general data. I would just say a lot of our data the, is garbage. The particular problem with, with policing, it's not it's not the departments themselves, is that policing is done so locally, right? So that, uh, you know, even states, you could say, well, let's like look at Texas. But with, with police departments, they are covering very, very small areas. So you unless you have a national data system, there's like nothing you can do with it. It's a problem. Better data. All right. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Weeds. Uh, send us email at weedsatbox.com. Uh, curious if you liked uh, having a guest on the show. Obviously, the first time we have done this. So if there's other guests that are interested in If there are other guests you'd like know. to hear on the show, um, uh, assuming you liked it. It'd be weird if you hated it, but also have a lot of people you want us to have on. <laughs> well, that, maybe if we had some other guests. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like you just more. didn't like this one. Uh, thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. And we'll be back, as always, next week. Boom. That was good. I enjoyed that. Oh, yeah.